This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seat, two-term incumbent, independent. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Welcome to the party room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Ngunnawal country. You're in Parliament House, MPK. I'm Frank Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation, and soon we're going to be joined by Ewan Hannan. Ewan's the workplace editor for the Australian newspaper because I think pretty much from now until the end of this parliamentary year, we are going to be talking about IR because the Albanese government is really trying hard to get its legislation through. They promised higher wages and this bill, this IR bill, is their platform for delivering that, particularly for low-paid, feminised sectors um, of of our economy. So Ewan's going to bring us up to date with all the pushing and pulling around that and there's plenty of it going on. <laughs> but first, PK, we should start overseas because very many world leaders, not ours but plenty of others, are meeting in Egypt at the moment for the COP27 Climate Summit. It opened with yet another warning from the UN Secretary-General. We are in the fight of our lives and we are losing. Greenhouse gas emissions keep growing. Global temperatures keep rising. And our planet is fast approaching tipping points that will make climate chaos irreversible. We are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. Devastating words, and I think people who've gone through some of our own natural disasters have experienced uh, those words already, you know. Mm, it is the highway health. to hell. It really is. It's climate hell for lots of people. If your house is in its third, you know, third flood, you are thinking this is hell, right? So do these warnings make any difference is the big question. Well, I hope so because the science is very crystal clear here and, and there is a consensus that it's right Our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, is not at the summit, but Pat Conroy, the Minister for International Development and the Pacific, is. And next week, of course, um, we'll have Chris Bowen, who's a pretty senior minister, going there as well. At the moment, the big contentious thing is whether Australia will be supporting this key idea of a loss and damage fund which is this idea of whether industrialised nations should compensate developing nations for damage caused by climate change. Now, Australia will uh, support having the the thing debated, uh, but hasn't yet said it will sign up. It still has some concerns about what it, it actually commits them to and control over that funding, Fran. But let's be serious here. Australia... Uh, also wants to co-host the the COP 2026 um, conference. I don't think there's any realistic idea that it that it would if it didn't really sign on here. If you if you're allowing it for mm. debate, I think that's the strongest indication that you're going there, right? Oh, I think so. And we're going to learn more about that. I mean, you, I think that your your interview this week with the climate minister Chris Bowen was pretty instructive. There, he said, you know, we're going to be responsible. We're going to sign on to allow this debate to happen, and that's an important step. We, you tried to push him with, well, will you give money to the fund? But they're not there yet. That's not where it's at yet. Um, but clearly, if Australia wants to host the 2026 COP, if it wants to take its position as a sort of leading world player again on climate policy, 
policy, it will end up doing that. But that's not where the discussion is right now. However, that's not stopping the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, here, who really decided to make something of this kind of issue of the loss and damage fund this week, PK. Here's the opposition leader in question time challenging the Albanese government not to sign up to such a fund. Prime Minister, the Coalition has ruled out paying compensation to other nations for the effects of climate change. Will the Albanese government also rule out signing Australia up to compensating other countries as part of the deal being negotiated at COP27 in Egypt? But Anthony Albanese really wasn't having any of this and uh, he struck back in question time. One of the things I won't do is in front of a boom mic make a joke about our island neighbours down there. That's one of the things that I won't do. I won't do that. And I won't do that because I want to build good relations with our Pacific neighbours. So that was a taste of it, uh, the debate this week in Question Time. You know, PK, you thought the climate wars were over? Well, seems they're not. No, they're not over. Um, you know, they've, they've simmered down a little, but then I wouldn't say they're over. Uh, Labor says uh, they want to be model global citizens, right? Like, that's their line. Uh, they are happy to be talking about strengthening their relationship with Pacific nations uh, and and leading into that. Um, clearly, though, there are lots of domestic pressures on this, Fran, with power prices at the moment. Uh, so it is actually tricky terrain for Labor. They have to absolutely stay strong on mitigating and dealing with climate change. But at the same time, there are some real pressures on energy prices, sort of an adjacent mm. issue, which I still think is an issue for them. And and read between the lines. That's a lot of what Peter Dutton is trying to land here. Um, mm. He wants that to become a bigger theme. And my understanding is that in focus groups, in lots of these places where they try and figure out if they are landing any punches, this idea of rising bills and frustration is coming up. So the, the coalition that's why they're staying on this territory. Yeah, I want to talk about um, power bills because there's been a lot happening just in the last couple of days on this, but um, I think we should stick with uh, what's going on overseas because Anthony Albanese is not in Egypt for this climate conference, but next week he will be overseas because it's summit season, PK. Who knew there was such a thing? The PM's going to four of them, ASEAN, East Asia Summit, the G20 and APEC. So just a quiet week of diplomacy. Um, the big ticket, though, is going to be not around the table at these meetings so much, but the question of whether Anthony Albanese meets with the Chinese President Xi Jinping on the sideline of any of these meetings. It would be his first one-on-one -on -one chat with President Xi Jinping. In fact, I think it'd be the first leader-to-leader -leader meeting with China for quite a few years, PK. We've been in the deep freeze for a while, haven't we? We've been in the freezer, that's right. This is hugely important. The last Australian Prime Minister to meet Xi face-to-face -face was Malcolm Turnbull in 2016. And uh, clearly Anthony Albanese says he's keen to make the meeting happen. To be clear, everyone's wanted these meetings to happen. It's just that the Chinese have been very inflexible, right? But mm. clearly that's, there's, there's something shifting because it's in their interests to, to, to open up dialogue. Now, the potential meeting would be at a crucial time, the Chinese economy is slowing down. The COVID zero approach is is hurting them, uh, although they haven't moved away from it. They are our biggest trading partner. For us, it's an important relationship, even if we have many strategic um, issues with the rise of China. Labor does want to reset the relationship as much as it possibly can, given the sensitivities on AUKUS and the heightened tensions over Taiwan. These are still issues. 
But Fran, we are getting the sort of view that this is very likely to happen. Uh, Penny Wong spoke to a Chinese counterpart over the phone. So, you know, they're picking up the phone. That's there a change. Is, I remember yeah. when ministers, I remember ministers like David Littleproud and others used to have to admit um, reluctantly that they couldn't get anyone to answer their phone, any Chinese counterpart to answer their phone. So that's a, that's a, a big shift, really. It is, and the coalition's welcoming it, right? They're not. They're actually sort of saying, "Hey, yep, yep, that's good. We want these talks." Um, Peter Dutton has had a meeting with the Chinese ambassador, also a big deal. Uh, so there is a shift if you look from the Chinese perspective in this engagement, which I think is key. So my money is on the fact that this meeting probably will happen now. It's all looking that way. Um, I hope I don't lose all my money uh, if it doesn't turn out because diplomacy is hard to predict. But I do think. Any talking is good talking. Clearly, though, there are some benchmarks the Prime Minister will have to meet, um, making sure that he, you know, raises the issues of detained Australians, mm. um, uh, the human rights issues, while also talking about the trade issues, which obviously he wants to open up. So, you know, watch that space, but a very big week for Australia on the international stage. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot going on this week, PK. Um, the Medibank data leak took a sinister turn. The hackers have started releasing stolen data on the dark web after Medibank refused to pay a ransom. The Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill, had some fairly choice words to say about this in question time. I cannot articulate the disgust I have for the scumbags who are at the heart of this criminal act. People are entitled to keep their health information private. Even amongst ransomware attackers, the idea of releasing personal medical information of other people is considered beyond the pale. So make no mistake about it, this is not just any ordinary group of scummy criminals, this is the lowest of the low. And, you know, fair point, I think, PK, because this is real people's data being published on the dark web. We know that's a scary place. Reportedly, we've got the basic information of about 5 million Medibank customers posted so far. But the hackers, uh, and I find this really chilling, are also releasing particular details of clusters of customers, revealing elements of their health status. Uh, It might be their HIV positive status. It might be information about abortions. I mean, this is just a terrible thing to do. And it will almost certainly impact people's lives in very serious and very stressful ways. But You know, the horse has bolted and it it seems there's little a government can do to protect people once data is stolen. You would really hope, though, that this horrible event is going to lead to improved regulation and protection, safeguards to make sure this just doesn't keep happening to other companies and more Australians. And, you know, I think you really got to hope it's a wake-up call to corporate Australia to ring-fence their data better. If it isn't affecting you, it's perhaps hard to see how potentially dangerous this is for people, PK, but this stuff can ruin people's lives and we need to do more about protecting data and also questioning what data and how much data is held by our companies that we all do business with. Yeah, I think uh, it's really chilling, as you say. This this is really personal stuff. It's really... I, I spoke to... Um, someone who who works in the HIV space on RM Breakfast who was talking about the fear of people uh, living with HIV for for that to be released and creating a stigma around it. It's just so um, mental health issues. Like these are the mm. these really personal things that are int- well, all things should be personal, but that it's your information. But just make people really vulnerable, right? So it's it's hideous. But as you say, um, this is a wake-up call and it just shows in a digitised world that actually we really need to think very deeply about these issues because the way we share information is so vulnerable and 
Um, it's super alarming. Now, there's lots of places that you can go if you're one of these Medibank customers. The Prime Minister is a Medibank customer. I think, you know, any any company you've got details with can be exposed. So I think we're all kind of paranoid about this. Anyway, Claire O'Neill has given a, a step-by-step instruction on what to do. Go find her, follow her. I'm sure you already have dealt with it if you're um, as paranoid as I am. But if you haven't, um, get onto it because there are things that you can do. Yeah, there are. And we'll try and post a link if we can too. But there's uh, a whole lot of numbers to call. And if you are worried about it, I'm sure a lot of people are, then uh, it's best to try and find out what is possible to do. Um, PK, before we open the door to the party to Ewan, uh, let's go back to the the issue of power prices because people are getting very antsy about this, businesses in particular. This week, the head of Treasury, Stephen Kennedy, publicly endorsed market intervention to cap or reduce coal and gas prices, warning unusually high profits are coming at the expense of poor Australians. Now, what do you think? Is that a clue that the Albanese government is going to consider a windfall tax on, on gas providers after all? I mean, they're raking in their profits um, because the war in Ukraine has you know, lifted demand globally uh, for our exports. Um, is that what they're going to do? Put on a windfall tax after all and then freeze power bills maybe, which is what the Greens are suggesting. Uh, there's also talk of an agreed cap on domestic gas prices for a period of time. But as I say, this is urgent now because manufacturers are reporting power bills absolutely skyrocketing. I'm talking, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars increases in some cases and they're saying they just can't keep it up for, for very much longer and they need government help. Mm. Look, this statement um, by Dr Kennedy uh, was read out by the Deputy Secretary. It, it was pretty strong, right? He says uh, that the war in Ukraine has prompted a redistribution of income and wealth that is not in the national interest and and that this needs to be intervened into. Like, this is stuff you don't usually hear from a Treasury boss. So, Absolutely. And if you look at the public polling, clearly in the public sphere, nor- normal everyday voters think, yep, get into it, get involved government. Now, the government says, we're working on it, we're working on it. Uh, Ordinary people like me asking questions go, okay, why not yet though? Um, There seems a sense of urgency. They tell you both privately and publicly, it's much more complex than it looks, right? So making sure there are no unintended consequences, price caps are a big thing, temporary, how long, how to do it, the mechanisms, all of that have to be worked out. But uh, my understanding is that this is now, you know, within weeks. Um, so it's kind of very soon, this decision that's to come. They've given themselves um, basically this deadline because they need to provide some clarity. And then the obvious question will be, you know, by how much does it bring power prices down? How does it materially affect ordinary people paying bills, but also businesses, the manufacturers that are warning they're about to hit the wall? Because, uh, you know, they just can't afford their bills. Some extraordinary uh, prices that are being charged to them. So watch this space. Um, and then it'll be interesting to see how the coalition responds. I don't think realistically they can oppose this sort of thing. Uh, I don't think ideology can really dictate... Uh, you know, any anti-market intervention because they've really zeroed in on power prices as a theme. So they're going to have to, I just think they're going to have to give it support. Yeah, well, we'll see. I think they um, see there's a lot of political points in this still left for them. So we'll see how it moves. But it's got to move pretty quickly, as you're right. The government's promised this will be done by Christmas. And I really think realistically in the next few weeks they want to get it done because there's polls starting to come up now showing that, you know, overwhelmingly Australians want something done about this. Should we bring in our guest, PK? Let's do it. (laughs) Ewan Hannan, Workplace Editor for the Australian Newspaper. Welcome to the party room. Hi, Patricia. Hi, Fran. 
Hey, Ewan, great to have you here because basically, Ewan, you know pretty much everything there is to know about industrial relations. So it's signing off on amendments at the rate of knots, it seems to me, Ewan, to try and placate the crossbench and business groups to try and get this done by Christmas. Ewan, are they there yet? Not yet, Fran. Uh, Today they're going to try and get the bill through the lower house and it's off to the Senate. There'll be more Senate uh, hearings in the next uh, few days. But they're optimistic they'll be able to get it over the line. The key sticking point is around multi-employer bargaining. The rest of the bill is generally being supported by the crossbench. So multi-employer is where the uh, fight's going to be. And what is that fight, right? Because it sounds like... Sounds good. Multi-employer and low-paid low paid workers are going to get a pay rise, which is the sort of headline. Business is really freaking out. COSBOA, which is the small business group that were, that originally looked like it thought this was a good idea, is now pulling out and saying not a good idea. So what, what are they worried about and are they right? Well, I suppose you've got to think of it from one perspective is that the employers always come from a position where they want to keep their labour costs down. So while they say they support higher wages... They're worried about their members and uh, the members are telling them, well, we don't want to have uh, higher wages necessarily. We don't want to have uh, unions having more influence. So they come from a position of trying to wind the bill back. So at the moment, there's going to be four different bargaining streams. I don't want to get into too much boring detail, but there is um, one stream, which is the supported bargaining stream, which in English, that means the low paid bargaining stream, which affects people like Childcare workers, uh, cleaners, etc. Highly feminised industries. We saw this last week with the aged care sector getting a 15% pay increase through the commission. But this is about giving those people more bargaining power. Then you've got a thing called the cooperative bargaining stream, which is um, generally open to everyone, but there can be no strike action in that stream. And that's in relation to small business. And that comes out of the sort of discussions that were had between Labor and Cosboa, like you mentioned. Then there's this the normal enterprise bargaining, which we've had, which is not working. Only 15% of the private sector is covered by a current enterprise agreement. That's one of the reasons they're doing these changes. Now, the most contentious element is what's called the single interest multi-employer bargaining stream. It's a bit of a mouthful. Workers will be able to go and strike in relation to this. It could potentially cover a lot of uh, employers across the uh, economy. That's where the, the business groups are getting upset. The issue is that part of it hasn't been defined adequately by the government, so it gives the employers a uh, big room to run a scare campaign. This is the main concern of David Pocock, who's going to be critical to passing the bill. Okay, so I want to get to... to there's so much in that answer. Thank you. That but was just, well explained. Just, Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> very like well explained. And, and we'll get to, you know, the strikes and all that. But can you just tell me a little bit more, Ewan, about the single interest multi-employer bargaining stream, what that actually means and why why the uh, employers um, are so, you know, nervous about it, don't want it, you know, what's it supposed to do and what's the problem with how it's constructed at the moment in the bill? All right, so under the single interest stream, employers uh, can be brought into uh, bargaining if there's a common interest. And also if the Fair Work Commission decides it's in the public interest. So it's pretty broad. So it doesn't define at the moment who's in and who's out. Uh, There's capacity for workers and unions to take industrial action in this stream. And the government has made amendments and said, okay, there's a six-month period where there's a grace period where employers won't be dragged into it. 
and it'll also you'll have to get an agreement um, workplace by workplace. There'll have to be a vote um, in every single workplace. The employers were arguing that small workplaces could be dragged into this stream by the vote of bigger workplaces. The government has sought to uh, address that concern by saying there's going to be a vote at each time. That will make it more bureaucratic and that will mean there'll have to be mm. votes at three different places. So, um, Ewan, is it a problem what you said there about, you know, it's not clear sort of who's in and who's out, who's, who'd be covered from this, which sorts of groups of, of common interests would be covered and not? I mean, is that, that seems to me an essential problem or is that, is that for the Fair Work Commission then to determine? Well, yeah, in parts for the Fair Work Commission to determine, it's for the employers and the uh, workers to decide who wants to be in it, so not to have restrictions on it. But the political issue here is that it gives the employers and the opposition an attempt to sort of muddy the waters and say it could apply across the economy. You had Michaelia Cash um, in recent days saying, oh, these, um, uh, this bill could close down Australia if it was passed, which is patently um, over the top. Um, so... That's the political issue which uh, David Pocock's grappling with at the moment. If, you actually, if the government actually carved this part out, it would get the rest of the bill passed and it would achieve a big part of what they wanted to do. So this is what's... I find this common interest thing, this single interest stream contention really interesting, Ewan. Who could it potentially... If it's vague and the employers or the analysts are right... Who could be drawn in? Like, who could I have a common interest with? Like, what is the worst-case scenario that they're worried mm. about, which is plausible? Well, it won't cover the CFMEU in construction for a start. So normally um, the employers and the opposition would be talking about the CFMEU, the CFMEU coming to your workplace. They've been carved out, so it won't apply to them. The government uses the example of um, a group of, like, air conditioning employers in Sydney who run an association who want to get together. It could apply across uh, different areas. Um, Jennifer Westercott from the BCA says, oh, it could apply to supermarkets, the banks, etc." I think that's an exaggeration. I think it, can't apply, it won't apply in this, at the moment where there's existing enterprise agreements. It w- with the banks, for example, it would be hard for the finance sector union, which has got low membership, to be able to get up a vote in all the different banks to bring on multi-employer bargaining. So I think there's a definite attempt by the employers to conflate and confuse and make people panicked about it so they can get the um, legislation wound back to a more um, to a position they'd like. Is this the 1970s? Uh, that's the that's what we've heard from some employers. We're going to go back to these big strikes. I don't even know if most people remember the 70s. Um, uh, I barely do. I was kind of, you know, barely on earth then. But uh, we heard there were lots of strikes. I don't know, my sisters talk about them. Uh, is it going to be, like, scary for people? Is it true? Oh, but if it was the seminars, it'd be good. It'd be great to see some musicians, David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust. You know, Abba would be back. Abba would be back in Australia, Abba arrival. I remember that. Yeah, so I'm showing my age there. Um, no, in a word. Uh, I thought it was interesting last week, um, Mark Wooden, who's a labour market economist, Fair Work Commission expert panellist, not a raving lefty, quite the reverse. He says there's no way known that this bill would lead to a return to the 70s conditions. We, um, in the 70s, we had a centralised wages fixing system. We had union membership at around 50%. We now have an enterprise bargaining system, a decentralised system. We have union membership at 14%. We have private sector union membership at 10%. So nine out of 10 people in the private sector are not union members. 
So unions wouldn't be able to do all the things that the opposition and the employers say they could do. We're not going to have okay. industry-wide strikes. Okay, Ewan, but when Tony Burke announced this bill, it was all about discussions around small workplaces um, where, you know, f- f- feminised workers are gathered, basically. So we're talking childcare centres, for instance, aged care homes, those kind of things. But now you're saying, I mean, you're talking about potentially banks and this is not what it was designed for, was it? Is, is this the problem that um, the employers have and, and some of the crossbenchers have? I think one of the issues is that uh, the government specifically doesn't have a, a mandate around the issue of multi-employer bargaining. It went to the election saying we're going to um, you know, seek to increase wages, we're going to fix the broken wages system, but it didn't specifically talk about multi-employer bargaining. This sure. was introduced after the election, so that's one of the problems. You know, you've got the ma- politically you've got a question about the mandate issue and then the question about the complexity. And the other thing is the rush, right? There, and, and I've heard from a lot of people now, they've never seen a rush quite like this. Uh, master builders told me, and well, they oppose everything, by the way. <laughs> I mean, why are the master builders opposed if the CFMEU can't be part of it? What's their concern? Uh, well, they've got broad concerns around uh, changes to multi-employer bargaining, but also in a broader sense, but um, because they would just be opposed to that anyway, even though the CFMEU is not affected other unions. Uh, and play outside construction, but also um, they've got, you know, deep ties to the opposition, I suppose. They, they're going to be um, opposed to it. They've been opposed to a lot of these changes for a long time, like a lot of the other employer groups. So that's no surprise. So, right. The um, rush. The rush. Let's go to the rush because there is a big rush. Uh, is this rush unprecedented? Do they still have a pathway <laughs> to meet the rush? How's David Pocock going with all this? Okay, so there's a... You can argue that it's a rush. So where are we at at the moment? We've got another two two or three weeks before there's a vote on it. Uh, the sticking point is multi-employer bargaining. Um, I'd say David Pocock in his office is probably the most um, expert on multi-employer bargaining in the country. They've had so many briefings about it, so they'd have to know a hell of a lot about it. The question is whether they will support it or not whether they actually will have to come out and say whether they're opposed to it. So I think they've probably had enough time to um, consider it. The problem for the government is that we have all these moving amendments. So there's been amendments in uh, recent days. There's going to be more amendments which are designed to sort of address his concerns. But at the same time, um, you could say, well, it's a movable feast. We don't have real certainty around it. So is there, can we delay that, carve that aspect out, delay it until February next year? Yes, you could and give it more time, but is the government got any chance of getting that up by itself? I I doubt it. Yeah. Um, Well, you're a former political editor too um, at a state level, um, uh, Ewan, so you know a little bit about politics. It's politics too, isn't it? Like they, they, you know, they need to to sort of bundle it all together in this omnibus bill to actually uh, get the other, put pressure on the Pococks of the world to, to pass it, right? That's right, because if you look, if you stand back and look at the bill, there's been all the fire and noise around the multi-employer bargaining, but there is a, a lot of elements of this bill which uh, get things that the business community wanted. For example, changes to the better off overall test, which Jennifer Westercott's been talking about for years, which they wanted the coalition to deliver on. That's going to be delivered. There are other efficiencies that the business will like. There are also other aspects like changes to fixed-term contracts, stopping the nuclear option of employers being able to rip up um, enterprise agreements that the unions want. So I think that's the best chance of getting it through. 
Now, the question of the mandate can be thrown back at the government, but let's remember Christian Porter uh, in the pandemic and Scott Morrison, they tried to engage in a huge overhaul of industrial relations. They had no specific mandate for that, but they used the pandemic to do it. Ultimately, they failed. So the, we don't want to overstep, over-talk the um, mandate issue too much. Um, Ewan, do you think, I mean, there's, there's a lot of talk, as PK would say, hey, what's the rush? But also, why not just split the bill and get the parts that everyone seems to agree with through now and then hive off the, the multi-employer um, bargaining stream, single-interest multi-employer bargaining stream for afterwards because that's the hard bit. But do you think the government is determined not to do that because they don't want to risk a big summer business campaign against the bill? You know, they, they've learnt from past business campaigns. The mining tax comes to mind. Yeah, that's right. So um, you've had some of the resource employers already already starting a campaign against the changes. You've had um, the Business Council and Cosborough, for example, who were sort of quite pragmatic at the start of this process and when Labor came in, now they're quite hard in their opposition, which is probably a reflection of their key members and what their members want the lobby groups to do. So I think it'll be harder and harder for the government to do it. And also, let's not forget, this stage two of their IR sort of changes have to come in next year. They split up uh, elements of their election commitments. So they've still got the uh, issues around... Same job, same pay, labour hire changes, um, wage enforcement, the so-called wage theft changes. But the first one around labour hire, that's going to lead to a huge campaign by the employers, which will probably, um, you know, potentially dwarf the current campaign. So there's going to be ongoing issues where you're going to have those the employers and the, and the government butting heads over those issues. But that's uh, you know that's politics and that's policy. Yeah, that is politics. That's right. That's when you want to do something, you often do actually uh, come up against this sort of stuff. So you and we're recording this on a Thursday morning. We've got to let you go because you're going to watch all of the debate, of course, and and this play out. Um, do you reckon they can get it through by the end of the year? Is it still a pathway? Yeah, I think there's still a pathway through David Pocock, not through Jackie Lambie. I don't think Jackie Lambie will support it. So if they make significant amendments to the single-interest multi-employer stream, I think there's a prospect of, of it getting through. The other alternative is uh, carve that part out get, and the rest of it goes through, and that would still be a very significant achievement for the government so early in its term. Ewan, thank you for letting us pick your IR nerd brain. I know Fran <laughs> and I often talk of the brain and we appreciate your... <laughs> Well, significant knowledge in this area, making it make sense to normal people, right, Fran? Yeah, that was great, Ewan. Thank you so much. No worries. Thanks very much. See you. See you. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Order. Yes, the bells are ringing, which means it's question time here on The Party Room. And this week's question comes from Kate Carves. Kate, I hope I'm saying it correctly who asks, is there a minimum amount of time ministers need to sit in question time? I've noticed that Morrison leaves the House at 3pm on the dot every sitting. PK, Mm. I hadn't noticed that. Is there? Yes, it's true. Now, Kate, um, your surname is very similar to mine, Carves. Mine's Carvelis, so solidarity. Um, But it is true. Um, I've checked it with others. After I got the question, I was really interested. I was like, does he? Because I hadn't noticed that. And Mm. I spoke to some MPs in the House. They said, yep. And in fact, it's right on the dot almost. It's, it's, it's really, it's unusual, they said, that <laughs> it's always at the same time. So you ask a very, very good question. Is there a reason like he has to do a mandatory amount? No. In fact, I learned like it's only convention. There's no requirement at all to turn up to question time. All you oh. have to do is turn up once a day 
and you can just walk through the house of represent, like the the lower house floor, and then tick, you've attended. Just walk through. That's it. Um, and and you know you are fulfilling your constitutional duty, right? Uh, you don't have to go to question time, but people do, and it's seen as a bad look not to. And then uh, he could go in five minutes if he wanted to, but he obviously has made a decision that he's stay for a period. I don't know why he leaves at three, and usually I do good due diligence. I haven't called to check. I don't think he's doing anything wrong, so it doesn't really matter. Um, but it is at three, so maybe he calls someone at three or he does something interesting at three. I don't know. Maybe he runs maybe. at that time. I, I remember when Clive Palmer was elected. Remember that? He, he often was not in question time for long periods of time, just didn't really appear in the mm. parliament. Um, you know, I personally think they should. I think they should be required to step up. It's where they have to, you know, be accountable. It's televised. The public can see their politicians, their elected representatives in action. They're paid as our elected representatives. I personally think they should have to spend a certain amount of time in that period, but it seems they don't. Yeah, no, they don't officially, but, you know, they, they clearly often do fulfil the, the convention, right? They do, so, you know... Given they don't have to and they do, that's good. Turn up to Parliament. That's true. If you've been elected, turn up. Good idea. It makes sense to me. Uh, keep sending your questions in because we love getting them. You can tweet using the hashtag if you're still on Twitter. That's a whole other podcast. Uh, the hashtag <laughs> is The Party Room or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. I look forward to doing that podcast, BK. Remember, follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. See you, Fran. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.